It's good to see everyone this morning. It is the first Sunday of the new year, first Lord's Day of the new year. We are uh, overwhelmed and overjoyed to be able to be in the presence of our God and to give Him thanks and the glory and honor that He deserves. Thank you for being with us. Appreciate the men leading the worship service up to now and the good comments, the good thoughts that have been expressed. Thank you very much for that. I hope, hope this lesson will continue in that. Um, I hope you'll be edified by the efforts that we make here this morning on this Lord's Day. As we begin a new year, we um, begin a new theme for our year. Last year we did this um, as a way of uh, focusing our efforts, focusing our minds, our thoughts on a particular aspect of our Christian life. Last year, we looked at um, how we might confidently approach the throne of grace. We looked from Hebrews 4 and 16. We looked at lessons and discussed things about how we might build our faith and how we might be confident in our faith. God wants us to be confident in our faith. He wants us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. And so those were the lessons that we looked at last year. This year, with our theme, the theme is called Highest and Best. And what I hope to uh, accomplish with this series of lessons throughout this year is really putting our confident faith into action. We've, like I said, looked at lessons on how we might build our faith but faith alone is not enough. Our faith has to be a working faith. Our faith has to be the, 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 ground, the grounding by which we then go out and do the works that we have been prescribed to do in God's word. So the idea here of, of highest and best is a theme that will hopefully help us throughout the year to to make the effort to indeed bring the highest and best that we have to God. So what, is, what does it mean? What does this highest and best mean? Well, um, the term comes from really the business world. Um, in particular, uh, in land development, which I used to be a part of, um, as my uh, professional career in civil engineering, landscape architecture, Highest and best meant that uh, something might realize its fullest potential. If a, if a client came to us with a piece of property and wanted to develop it, they would want to know what is the highest and best use I can get for this particular piece of property. In more general terms, in just business itself, someone might bring a product to market and want to say, well, what is the highest and best use I can get out of this particular product? And any uh, wise businessman would do that. It, it dictates their investment, it dictates their price, it dictates their return on their investment. But what it really means is realizing the fullest potential. What is the fullest potential that this particular product uh, might have? So in spiritual terms, we can use that in our thinking. What's the fullest potential? What is the highest and best use of my talents that I bring to the table 
that I can give in service to God. And so we use this analogy and start asking ourselves some questions. First question we might ask is, well, how much are you willing to invest? How much time and energy and, and money are you willing to invest in the product, to use the business terminology? And that's going to dictate a lot of things. How much money do you have? How much time do you have? How much energy do you have? But in spiritual terms, what are we willing to invest in the same idea? How much time are we willing to invest? How much energy are we willing to invest? How much of our own possessions, our own wealth, are we willing to invest in God's kingdom? And then what might naturally follow is, well, what can I expect in return? If I'm going to invest this time and energy and, and my money into this, what might I expect on the other side? What might I expect as a return on my investment? Well, I think you know, without me having to tell you, that this is where the, the analogy starts to break down a little bit. Because in the business world, there's a certain amount of money that we might expect to get back. We hope we get all that. We hope we realize all of that. But in spiritual terms, we can't measure the return on our investment. Because it's our eternal soul. It is everything that we are. God has promised us eternal life in heaven amongst other brethren, amongst the angels, amongst God the Father, and God the Son, the Holy Spirit. How do you measure that? So when we start looking at all of these things, how much then are you willing to invest knowing that your return on that is everlasting life? Wouldn't that be worth a pretty big investment? Wouldn't that be worth a lot of time, a lot of energy, and as much as we can handle financially, taking care of the other things that we have in our own lives? Scripture tells us to take care of ourselves and those around us. How much are we willing to invest, knowing what the return on our investment is? Let's look at some scripture. And let's start by understanding what it is that God expects. What is it that God wants? Go to Exodus chapter 12. You see, God expects things of his children. He expects a certain level of investment, if, if we can continue our analogy. In Exodus chapter 12, we read of the institution of the Passover. If you remember from history, what's going on here in chapter 11, the, the last plague, the 10th plague, is, is besetting, or about to beset, the land of Egypt. These plagues were given so that Pharaoh would let the children of Israel come out of Egyptian bondage. And he wouldn't do it at first, so these, God has, has smited him, or smote him, <laughs> with these plagues. And the last one being the plague of the firstborn, where all the firstborn in the land of Egypt was going to be killed. But God institutes the Passover here where they are to, to take a lamb and they are to 
to sacrifice it, and they'd take some of the blood and put it over their doorpost and over their lintel. And so when the angel of God comes to destroy the first, firstborn, he will pass over those houses where he sees the blood on the doorpost. And in this Passover uh, that God is instituting here, as we mentioned, the, the slaying of the, the sacrificial lamb, look what it says about, about that lamb. Beginning in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 12. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth month of this day, they are to each take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the lamb is too small, the lamb he, may, uh, he and his neighbor nearest to him are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. You shall, uh, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it from the 14th day in the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. And it goes on, we're not going to read all of it, but to tell how they are to take, uh, to participate in the, in the feast, uh, with their loins girded and with their staff in their hand, it goes on to talk about that. And the idea is that this is the last meal they're going to take, and then they're going to leave Egypt. And so there's certain things that, they, that God has, has proposed in this. And this Passover feast is going to serve as a memorial, as a reminder of them leaving Egyptian bondage under Pharaoh. And it lasts, now there's some time in there where they weren't taking the Passover when they fell away from God, but it gets reinstituted, they start taking it again. And we see at the very end of our Lord's life that he is there in Jerusalem taking the Passover. So that's how long this tradition lived on. But go back into what it says there about that, about that lamb. What kind of lamb was it? It was supposed to be one year old, taken from their herds, and it was supposed to be without blemish. It was supposed to be unspotted. It was supposed to be perfect. That is to say, God expected them to give of their best. Not the diseased animals, not the hurt animals, not the lame animals. Not any ones that were old and ready to die. How old were they to be? They were to be one year old. You see, God expected them to invest, if you will, by giving of, them, uh, of themselves the best of their flocks. You come over into chapter 13 of Exodus. We have, beginning first in chapter 13, this uh, a consecration, a further consecration that the Lord is going to established with them. You come to verse 11 of chapter 13. It says, Now it shall come when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, and the first offspring of every beast that is your own, the males belonging to the Lord. See, there's a further consecration that, that God expects of his children when they enter into the land of Canaan. And he says, I want your firstborn. I want you to dedicate that to me. It meant of their flocks, and it meant also of their children. Now, God doesn't expect them to sacrifice their children. Please understand, that's not, that's not what's being said. But they are to be dedicated to the Lord. The firstborn of every womb. So what does that tell us? It tells us that God wants the best. He wants the first. He wants the best. Not the blemished, not the old, not the sick. He wants the best. 
If you look over in Leviticus, and we won't go to all the, the examples here, but you just flip over there and look as I read out a couple here. From Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. You look in verse 10, it says, But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. If you come over to uh, chapter 4 and verse 3, If the anointed priest sins and to bring the guilt on the people, then let him, um, let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin that he has committed. Recognize a pattern? <laughs> what they are to bring to the to the Lord as a sacrifice, and their sacrifice animals that they are to bring, they are to be without defect. They are to be unblemished. They are to be from the best of their herds, not what's left over. We read there in Proverbs. Let's, let's turn there for a second. This idea of wanting the best continues throughout um, Israel's history. God expects that of them. We read there with the Passover and how that continues throughout his generations. Time and time again, God tells his children that he wants the best. In Proverbs here, Solomon reminds uh, his reader here, his son, that he addresses there back up in verse 1. In verse 9 of Proverbs 3, it says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce. See, there's, a, there's that expectation again, right? Honor the Lord from your wealth. Give the Lord from, 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 your, from your abundance. Don't, and I've used this, and I used it recently. Um, you, we have a budget, don't we, in our, in our lives. Where does God rank in, in our budgeting? Is he number one? Or is he, you know, further down after we pay Uncle Sam groceries and and our car payment, and our house payment, and electricity. Where does God rank in that? Scripture tells us it needs to be first. Honor the Lord from your wealth, and from the first of all you produce. Here again, the first. What kind of uh, animal was it that they wanted? A, a, a year old. A youngling. Not the old and the sick of the, of the, of the, of the livestock. The first. The best. This is what God expects. Let's come into the New Testament. Go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. As the Lord is about to come on the scene here, we remember how John the Baptist comes um, leading the way, proclaiming, the coming Messiah. And as John is, is in his ministry and he's baptizing people for the remission of their sins, look what he says here, Luke chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 7. It says, and therefore, and therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, they were coming out to, to, to be baptized by John, and John is is questioning them immediately. Verse 8, Therefore bring fruits in keeping with repentance, 
And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able to, from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. You see, the Jews relied so heavily on their pedigree, on their family lineage. We are the sons of Abraham. What is John saying here? John's saying you bring fruits worthy of repentance. You see, the idea of bringing the best to God carries on into the New Testament. It doesn't end with um, the old law. It carries on. Our Lord, in his teaching, we're going to look at here in a moment, continues that. And John is setting the stage here. Bring fruits worthy of repentance. What is it that we bring when we approach God? Are we bringing fruits worthy of repentance? Look over in Luke chapter 6. As you're turning there, just uh, remember about the law of Christ versus the old law. Remember in the law of Christ how Jesus is going is to give an emphasis to how we treat one another. You know, the old law had its um, sacrifices and the things that they were to do, and, and all that was in praise to God, and, and certainly looking out for one another was part of it. But in the New Testament, Jesus is going to emphasize that, how we are to treat one another. And so the things that we do to one another starts to play into our best. How is it that we are giving our best to God? Well, we've got to be giving our best to one another. Look here in Luke 6, beginning of verse 27. It says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him. And he'll go on. We won't read all of that. But what he's saying here is you've got to love one another. And especially in this context, you've got to love your enemies. That's hard to do. It's easy, and he'll point out, it's easy to, to love those who love you. It's harder to love those who don't love you. But the idea of giving back, of... Uh, Doing good for the brethren and those around you is what's at stake here and what's at the heart of the, of, the, of the text. And look what he says there in verse 38. He says, give, and it will be given to you. Now, right there we can see there's, there's the idea of investment and return, right? We do something and then there's something that's done to us. We invest, there's a return on the investment. And look how... The return on the investment is described here. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So see that he's talking about um, grain here. Pressed down, shaken together. You know, you can put something in a, in a bushel basket. That's, that's one thing. But if you press it down, if you shake it, you really pack it in there if it's overflowing that speaks of God's grace that speaks of God's mercy that speaks of the return on the investment if we're willing to give a give of ourselves the return is going to be immeasurable see God doesn't do things in a half-hearted way God does things in abundant ways so if we're going to be blessed we're going to be blessed abundantly so how is it that we then, in this law of Christ that we live under, how is it that we bring sacrifices to God? Look in Romans chapter 12. 
I think this is probably one of those definitive uh, passages, especially in what we're talking about, especially in, in what it is that God expects of us in, in, in simple terms. Romans 12 and verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, there it is again. There's the concept again about what God expects of us. Does he expect, you know, what we have left over at the end of the day as our time and energy to, to him? Does he expect, when I get around to it, when I've got everything else done, I will serve God in whatever way that might be? Reading his word, calling a brother and checking on them, setting aside the monies that you might give back on the first day of the week. Where do all those activities rank in your service to him? Think about this. The way Paul expresses it is to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. You see, God doesn't require the sacrifice of animals anymore. Those things were done away with when the old law was fulfilled by our Lord. The Hebrew writer talks about how the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Jesus came. He died once for all. He was that perfect sacrifice. And so we have been redeemed from our sins. Those of us who have put on Christ have been immersed in the waters of baptism. We now get to partake and, and, and be a part of the kingdom. So what is it that we're to bring to God as sacrifice? Paul says it's our own bodies living an acceptable sacrifice. How is it that we are to sacrifice a living body? Well, we do it in what we have talked about. We give of our best. We don't give what's left over in our bodies, our time, our energy, or, or, or whatever. We give him the best. We devote ourselves to, to him and, and present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And guess what? Next day, we present our body as a living sacrifice. You see, the sacrifice of our body, we, we never die. We don't cut ourselves, and sorry for the graphic images here, but the, think of how those animals were sacrificed. We don't do that. Jesus has done that once for all. So our bodies go on living. But there is still the expectation that God wants the best from us. So what are we willing to give? Are we willing to give him the best? Are we willing to give him those first fruits? Are we willing to give him of our wealth? The things that he deserves. In closing, I want to just make mention, because this is the first lesson in a series that we'll, uh, that we'll have throughout the year. What I hope to do is to take this idea of, uh, of highest and best and and apply it to the things that we do as a congregation and the things we do as individuals. For instance, the worship of the church. Are we, as a collective body, as, as the members here and 
uh, of Cortez? Are we doing the best that we can in service to God as a collective body, as a church? Are we worshiping him the best that we can? Are we doing those, those the, what we call the five acts of worship, singing and, and praying and giving and the Lord's Supper and, and I'm going to do my best? But are we doing our best to worship God? What about the work of the church? What are we doing outside, outwardly? Evangelism. Um, giving to, to the brethren who need it. The outward things that we do as a body. Are we doing the best that we can? Are we working to be the best congregation that we can be, fully established, fully functioning, and perfect? That is, are we working towards elders and deacons so that this body can be fully uh, encompassed and prepared for the work of the church? We exist without elders. There's a lot of churches that do. It's not unscriptural for us to do so. But remember what Paul told Titus, I left you in Crete that you may appoint elders in all the churches. You know, we need to be working towards eldership so that we can be complete. Men, what are we doing to make sure that we are on that path to becoming an elder? Are we giving it our highest and best efforts? And then also the work of the individual. As individuals, are we giving our best? Are we presenting ourselves as living sacrifices, as Paul says there in Romans 12? So those are some of the things that we'll be addressing in upcoming lessons. I want to leave you with one last thought. And that is that, what shall we do? How do we put this into action? Well, I I spoke last week in our, our final lesson of last year about first committing yourself to the Lord. That commitment to the Lord is, is paramount. You've got to be first committed to the Lord, and then all the rest will follow. But it has to take a true commitment, doesn't it? It has to take um, the best, the right commitment, a dedicated commitment. But then going forward, how do we uh, make sure that we are presenting ourselves as that living sacrifice and, and doing that? Hebrew writer says it so well in Hebrews chapter 13. Beginning verse 15, he says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. You see, like we said, we don't have those animal sacrifices anymore. What do we offer to God? We offer the fruit of our lips. We offer praise to God. The things that we do and say need to be thought of as the sacrifice, as the best that we can give. Because that's what God wants in our sacrifices, the best. Note verse 16. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. See, it's not, it's not just uh, the things that we say and praises to God that he wants, and he wants that, and he wants that to be the kind of sacrifice it needs to be, the fruit of the lips, how we praise God. Remember what we said with the focus of the New Testament is that we have to be serving one another. 
So part of our sacrifice, as the Hebrew writer says here, is do not neglect the good and sharing with which such sacrifices God is pleased. So what kind of sacrifices does God want? He wants the best. First fruits. The first among the livestock. That's what he wants. So that's what God wants when he's talking about our sacrifices. We should be doing the best towards one another. And in so doing, we'll be pleasing to God. The highest and best. I hope that this, will, this little phrase will stick with you. That's kind of the idea. And I hope that you'll use this to think about how is it that I'm serving God? What is it that I'm doing in my everyday life? And can people look at me and say, that person is serving God? That's a good goal. But in our hearts, we know we need to be doing the highest and best. We need to be doing the best that we can for the God that we serve. Why? Because the return on investment is immeasurable. Jesus says in in John chapter 14 and verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go there to prepare a place for you that I might receive you to myself. Isn't that a wonderful sentiment to think about? That God, our Lord, is preparing for what we will receive. He's prepared for us this place in God's house. And he says, if if I didn't do this, I wouldn't have told you that I'm doing this. It's there, and when you are found good and well done, good and faithful servant, and you can go into that house. And that's a pretty amazing blessing and a pretty amazing uh, return on investment. Isn't it worth the best that we have to be able to live an eternity in the presence of our God? We offer an invitation, as we always do at the end of our time. If you're not a child of God, I would encourage you to delve into the scripture and see what it takes and to understand what it means to be a child of God. If you are a child of God and you're not doing as you should, now's a good time. <laughs> it's the first of the year, right? Now's a good time to, uh, to reinvest, to make those necessary changes in your life so that you are serving God to the best of your ability. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.